What's up, homies, and welcome to another episode of Humanizing Horror. I'm your host, Dio Holmes, and uh, hey, as promised, it's Sunday, and uh, here's a new episode. So, see, I say stuff and then do stuff, and then uh, stuff gets done. Anyway, this episode uh, is inspired by a conversation I had with our podcast friend, Pumpkinhead Podcast, and the conversation came up just because of a lot of discussion going on in the book community, book talk, book Twitter, um, about first, uh, protagonist for a story. And I uh, believe the episode that they did last week or the week before had to do with that from the standpoint of a romantic storyline of romance. And I think it's kind of fitting for horror to have a very similar talk. So we're going to get to that here in just a sec. All right, so here we go. When I think about a horror protagonist, the first the first individuals that come to mind is, of course, I think about, you know, our classic. I think about Nancy from A Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, I think about all of these great scream queens, these leading ladies that, that went up against these, you know, formidable and almost un- unbeatable terrors at, at this time period and you think about them and you think about these lines that they have I'm not afraid of you anymore get away from her you bitch you know killer mommy killer and you don't really go into unless you know the discussion goes deeper than that the psychology and if that character worked for that movie in reference to uh, Pumpkinhead podcast discussion about romance, which you know, I'm, a, I'm a multifaceted person. I don't just watch and consume horror media. There's a whole other 5% of things that I'm into. But as far as like the 95%, yes. But in that 5%, yes, I do watch a lot of indie. I watch a lot of dramas. I do partake in romantic some things. And one of the discussions that I know that has come about is the idea of a happy ending and a happily ever after. And... I have been asked several times if I believe that romantic movies or romantic media should have a happily ever after. And my answer has been the same since, you know, I was a, I was a, I was a little prostitute, which is, it depends on the story. Because to me, most stories that we consider to be happily ever after really are happy for now. I mean, your average Disney movie, these characters meet over the course of a couple of days, maybe a week, and then they're just kind of there, and they're happy, and they're in love, and they know nothing about each other, and then we're to assume that things just go well from there, and that's the media we consume, but that really, in a sense, you know, when you, when these sequels come up, you do find out that that was a lot of times happy for now, especially when you get to the sequel. I mean, to be honest, I think the most honest romantic story from Disney one of them anyway, is Aladdin. You get to the end of Aladdin and Jasmine and Aladdin are like, I don't fucking know you. I couldn't know each other. Let's just not get married. I wanted, the, I, I wanted the ability to be able to marry who I want. No, let me get to know you. You get to the second one and then they're like, hey, we're about to have this wedding, but let's see the world and shit first, you know, before we decide to spend the rest of our lives together. And then it's like, wow, you're, you're a prince of thieves. All the spoilers here if you haven't seen the other Aladdin movies, which I don't, I don't know why you haven't. And, some bops in there, some good themes, you know, we get Abysmal's return, Iago, anyway, but, uh, yeah, and I think those work so well, because if you look deeper than, you know, the great Robin Williams lending his voice to the genie, and, 
you know, the fun songs and the themes, what you see is a forming relationship between two individuals that dreamed about things beyond themselves, but then realize that those dreams didn't necessarily um, have room for another person there. And then they're trying to fit that other person to this dream that they wanted. It's a little deep, but the point of that is that that theme and those characters work for that story. And I think ultimately the perfect character fits the stories i.e. the perfect protagonist fits that story so I'm, I'm gonna be a bit of a snob here a little bit so let's talk about hellraiser for a moment right let's talk about hellraiser and kirsty and pinhead the idea of the puzzle box now when you read the book kirsty was not um you know frank's niece uh, Kirstie was actually a, a wanton, like, pining love interest, uh, for Frank's brother and the Hellbound Heart. You know, one of the other many changes besides the one that people constantly talk about, which is that Pinhead, uh, was a female in the original book. Let's, let's get over that, okay? Pinhead, whether well, th these are beings that go beyond sexuality and beyond the bounds of pleasure and pain. I don't really think that their gender specifics play a role except for to the individuals that they're tormenting in hell. So let's get over that. And let's pay attention to the fact that Kirstie was not a familial character, but was really just kind of like a secretary character that was in love with that individual. So the idea uh, of Kirstie is interesting because the puzzle box grants things to those that have a great desire they they open the door for you to desire it's like the Pacitabites say to themselves demons to some angels to others they grant you what you want to an extreme um beyond whatever you what you could possibly fathom that is somebody opening the puzzle box saying they want to experience something they've never experienced before where you've never been flayed before so here you go Kirsty's desire was Frank's brother, and Frank's brother gets killed by Uncle Frank. Spoiler warning, I gotta get better at this, but anyway, so when you get to the end of this book, a character that has been robbed of their desire is the perfect uh, formidable opponent for Pinhead and the Cenobites, who are essentially darker versions of a djinn wish-granting genies coming to twist the desires of those that have summoned them because what she desires now is unattainable she's she's hollow she's empty she's a void and if you go on to read some of the later hellraiser comics you find out that uh she eventually takes pinhead's place in a way um becoming the hell queen becoming the leader of the cenobites becoming a pinhead herself so it makes sense um for her to be that character that role you know you have Nancy in the Nightmare on Elm Street, who's, you know, this incredibly headstrong character in Nightmare on Elm Street, she's, you know, even amongst her friends, she's very, she's like, she's like the, the mom friend in the group. Um, she's very protective. So she's not, she's not really encompassing that innocence, even though she's technically, you know, she's still like our our virginal protagonist, but she doesn't encompass that sense of innocence that a child would have. And Freddy Krueger's victims are children, teenagers even. They're at that precipice. They're not quite, there's that level of immaturity there. Um, Nancy, being the daughter 
of a cop having a mother who is a drunk, likely having to step into a role of constantly having to be older and bigger than her britches was the perfect character to combat uh, this supernatural being whose victims were mostly children. Because while she was physically a child, she herself wasn't in a child mindset. She was not a, emotionally a child. So she was that that perfect kind of person for that role to combat you know, Frederick Kruger, I don't know if his name is really Frederick, we'll call him Frederick for this, Frederick Kruger, and uh, that worked, so, <sighs> let's talk about current horror and modern horror, because there's this, there's this idea, there's this concept, there's this thought that's been going around for years about protagonists, and I have to have two separate conversations, and I will try to keep them short, and if I succeed, this might be a shorter episode, if I don't, I hope you've got like an hour of free time. So, in modern horror, maybe this has been going on for longer than I realized and I was just younger and I didn't really catch it, but there's this idea that, like, your protagonist has to be likable. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, because here's the thing. If I'm watching a movie and the protagonist is irritating the shit out of me and I just want them to die. I'm not so much invested in what they're going through. I'm pretty much wanting to watch them expire at some point. Like, I am like, this person has to go. When are they going to catch an axe to the face? And to a certain point, that can be entertaining if you give me, like, a disreputable character and I'm just like, man, this person's a POS. Like, can't wait till they bite it. You know? Yeah, that's entertaining to a point. If you give me a groove I'm like, man, these assholes deserve to die. Prime example, the new Texas Chainsaw on Netflix. I didn't like any of those kids. I cared more about Leatherface's, like, mom or aunt, whoever she was supposed to be, and the random town hick that put up a good fight than I did about any of those kids. All of those kids, that, that was just, pff, they, they all, they all should have died. Like, they were so irritating, they were annoying, they were... Just everything, <laughs> if you take, like, what people say that they hate about this generation and you amplify that by 10, that's who these characters were. And, like, I, I honestly could care less about them and I just, like, wanted them to die. And when you do that, the thing that happens is that you end up kind of glorifying the actions of the antagonist. Like, I feel like I rooted for Leatherface in that a lot more <laughs> than I did for these kids who were, you know in Texas and being chainsaw massacred and that's just like how it ended up being and that ends up happening in a lot of movies and I feel like that's sad because I think there was unless unless there was unless it was satire and it was played for that I feel like there was an attempt to make these characters likable and I feel like that failed miserably not likable relatable and that's one way to get your audience to like a character, I feel like, is to be able to put yourself in that person's shoes. But that's difficult because then you're gauging the empathy of your audience. And that's not always easy to do because not everybody's capable of putting themselves in somebody else's shoes. And sometimes it takes a little more than that. Some of them can be like, oh man, I've had a paper cut before. So this person that looks nothing like me that's gone through stuff that I've never been through man, that's smart. And for other people, it's like, this person has to look, act, talk exactly like me. How about my same interests, my same sense of fashion, or I just don't get them. I can't project myself on them. I don't know who they are or where they're coming from, and I don't care about what they're going through. And, you know, 
whatever, little sociopath continue to run through life, but also, you know, that's just how it is. Um, so with that, I think where your focus should be is the story. And I and I'll give textures I think Nah, the story was cut off because there there was a lot wrong there. So let's just that was a horrible example. It was a great example of what I'm trying to get across about making the characters relatable versus, you know, likable. To answer the question right off, do I think your protagonist has to be likable for the film, the horror film to work? Fuck no. Because as you all know, I'm a great fan of La Rob Zombie's work and like he is notorious for writing fantastic assholes. Almost all his characters are assholes. To the 10th degree. As a matter of fact, most of his movies, when you look at The Devil's Reject 3, the main characters are the Firefly family. And they're a bunch of psychopathic murderers, but they're so charismatic and lovable. And, like, even though they're doing awful, awful things, like, you're sad when bad things happen to them. And I think that's something, you know, because, you know, here I am throwing props up again. But, like, Pumpkinhead Podcast had to think about this about villains and how villains can be charismatic. And... What's his name? Um, I think it's uh, Space Ninja. He's a YouTuber. He did this whole video on the Vampire Diaries where he talked about, uh, you know, you've got Stefan and, you know, his brother in the series and how they go back and forth between good and evil and how that kind of waned on because there is no growth there, which you don't have to worry about so much for a movie. In a series, yes, but in a movie, when you put in a charismatic villain, it's really hard not to get behind him. Um, jumping subject a little bit, as an example, spoiler heavy here. Killmonger from the Black Panther movie. You know, rest in peace, Chadwick Bowman. But Michael B. Jordan's performance in that movie just like made that film. And it was really hard not to identify with what Killmonger was saying. And yes, was he a villain? Was his way of going about it great? Not really, but it was really hard not to get behind what, what he was saying because he just carried so much energy in the plot and in his character and in his purpose. And I think where people lose out is because you put so much energy and emphasis, which you should, the villain of your movie, and you should. Your villain should be a badass in some sense because there's got to be some way, wake, or reason for your villain to be doing the fuckery that they're doing. Like, But you've got to make your characters, if not likable, just as charismatic and yielding to the plot as your antagonist it should literally be a coin to coin i feel like hellraiser for instance cursey has superpowers no no he does not pinhead and his whole crony crew does but kirsty told this these obviously mythical beings like no and to go to hell and she was she was spunky like even in the face of danger and you need that, that you needed that strength in that character, like, it was great, like, in, in the face of overwhelming odds, and this is the film version and, and the book version of, you know, steadfastness and that willingness to fight back, like, that's, those are character traits that I feel like were necessary to be the other side of that coin for that character. Now, yes, as we all know, I am not a fan of that whole trauma gives me strength, so let's, like, butcher this protagonist and then suddenly they have the strength to overcome the hero at the end prime example of a recent film fresh fucking hate fresh yes come for me i don't give a fuck y'all got my personal contact information i will make actually i'm not gonna make that a question because i don't want to give that movie any more attention than what it needs here's the thing fresh it's great 
had great performances, right? It's fantastic. Sebastian Stan, weeb window. Started to establish a fantastic story. It was great. Music slapped. It just, it fell off. And I feel like it fell off because, like, the other thing with protagonists, like, I don't know when this happened, but at some point we became afraid to really hurt our protagonist. I've seen movies recently where nothing even happens to the protagonist. Like, they they fall. I think they, 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 they skin their knee a little bit. They fray their jeans. They got a little scuff mark on their Adidas. But, like, that's what they come out of this with. Like... You give me a killer that can, like, lift up a car and, like, chuck somebody out of a window a few yards or something, and then you put them up against, you know, like a, you know, white blonde teenager that's, like, 98 pounds soaking wet, and they come out with some scuffs on their Nikes, and my suspension of disbelief only goes so far. But my thing with that is, like, I, I come from an era of film where, like, in Hostel, like, my boy got Bobby while he was missing half his hand at the end of that movie, and he still did a little bit of damage, but he was the protagonist for that movie. It worked. Like, one, I say this to all creators out there, don't be afraid to fuck up your protagonist. Don't be afraid. Because the, it's all part of the journey. Like, we're all going to come out. Even, even Frodo lost his fingers at the end of Return of the King. So, like, you know, don't be afraid. Scars, bumps, and bruises. They tell stories. They pull us through. I'm not saying do it just for funsies. Like, I'm not not telling you guys to be certain directors out here that we'll get to in other episodes. But I'm saying, like, that fear of, like, leaving them unblemished and untouched. Like, then, you know, what, you know, let us go through them on that journey. Let that terror be there. You know, even let them witness those things. And to answer the question in full, like... I guess it's simple black and whiting. I think the protagonist that works best for the story really depends on the story. And unfortunately, there are so many subgenres of horror that I would have to go list by list to do it. And like, okay, let's say, for example, right? Let's go with your typical, like, sorority house slasher film, right? And atypically in that role, they would give the protagonist the virginal girl that like joined because she really believes in the idea of sisterhood and maybe she stands up against the status quo of what's happening in the sorority which is likely hazing and various other things and all like the you know ones that are keeping up tradition or the more outspoken or the more awful girls are the ones that like bite it at the end and like the virginal good-hearted girl is the one that wins right right or they, like, subvert expectations and let, like, the bad mean girl kind of, like, live or something. And, like, that's, like, a, a, a penny for your thought kind of thing. But, like, why not have that girl be the one that wins? I saw this movie once on sci-fi. Don't ask me the name of it because it was wild. It was middle of the night. And there was a T-Rex. There were two guys running. I don't know why they were running from a T-Rex on an island. They just were. And the guy was like, what are we going to do? And he says, I have a plan. And he's like, what is it? And the guy that said, I have a plan, proceeded to pull out a crossbow and shoot the other guy in the fucking leg. Took off. T-Rex ate him. Runs into the guy's girl. And it's all like, what happened? He goes, he didn't make it. But I'm here. and I'll get us through this. And, and she tentatively kisses the guy. And like, that was a douchebag move, but awful. That was ingenious. And I would like to think that in that sorority house slasher situation... 
maybe the virgin girl that stays up all night doing her homework is not the one that's going to defeat the mongoloid slasher. Maybe it's going to be that girl that was willing to do whatever it takes to win. And I get that the message that, like, we kind of said that that satirical kind of society message is that, you know, be you and, like, that will be, you know, the goodness will win out. And that's why we typically have those characters there. But also, why not flip that and, like, everybody that works hard deserves surgery? Because, like, villainy takes takes a certain amount of effort, too. And there's more than one way to tell a story, right? Right. Like... Peter Pan, Peter Pan discussion that I had years ago. What if Captain Hook, his his entire existence, was that he was he represented these parents whose children were abducted by Peter Pan because they refused to grow up, and he represented these parents that just wanted their kids to have bright, shining futures. And while he's seen as, like, this antagonist to Peter Pan, who's offering forever youth, never grow up, be a kid forever, which is unnatural against the very, like, bylaws of humanity. The one thing we cannot escape is death and old age. Captain Hook, in a way, was actually the protagonist. He was trying to bring these kids, in a way, back to reality, back to their loving parents, back to their homes, back to this societal norm where Peter Pan was locking them in this unnatural loop of be young and play forever, you know? And, uh, you know, what's wrong with telling that story other than that's not, that's not a comforting story? Well, what's comforting? Because when I think of horror and let's not put it together when i think of romance romance is about fantasy right and it's about this to me horror has always been about accepting certain truths that's one of the things i love about this genre i like horror because i like accepting realities and i like finding a way to be okay with those realities if i'm not finding at least my grounding and footing so that i can change those realities for myself um it's my capricorn showing but with that i think that the thing that's always been neat about horror and the thing that's always been neat about the the, the part of it that was satirical, the part of it that, that tackled tough issues and has been positive with those issues in so many ways is that it forces us to face those certain truths. Like you, sometimes you can't run away from the monster and the trauma and the horrors of the world. Sometimes you have to face them head on. You have to fight the monster, even though it seems like there's no way to do it. And sometimes when you do that, maybe you don't come out completely okay, but you survive the day to sleep and wake up another day. And that's uh, it's one of those truths. So I think the protagonist is the person, the best protagonist for any horror movie, um, if I had to generalize with all the subgenres, is the one that's willing to hurt to get through it. I think the thing that made Nancy... And, and Ripley and Kirstie such badasses. The thing that makes Laurie Strode is that none of them went into that thinking that they weren't going to get stabbed. None of them went into those movies thinking that, you know, a second tongue wasn't going to come out and pierce the suit, that, that some acid wasn't going to fall, that, you know, some knife fingers weren't going to cut them at least once or twice. They knew the risk, they knew the horror, they knew the danger, but they just said that the the... The, the ends justified the means. And that 
to me, will always be the person that wants, the person that will survive the terrors of the night, you know? That person that's willing to uh, to, to grind that axe against Jason, that person that's willing to pick up a knife against Michael, you know? Because we we can't keep running and we can't run from those things. Um, and we may not face supernatural serial killers in our everyday life, but there are certain horrors and evils that are there. And sometimes the best thing that we can do as horror has taught us sometimes is accept that they exist. And I think those characters are always going to be the characters that better tell those stories. Those that are willing to accept that those terrors do exist. And sometimes we have to face them head on. With that, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, another week. I do this because of y'all and y'all are great and whatever you're all out there doing making pasta, running a marathon writing a book uh, I believe in you and what you're doing and uh, thanks for being here remember you could always support uh, it's like 99 cents a month, you won't even notice it's missing I'll definitely notice it's there um, feel free, buy my merch, buy my books um, answer the question here, engage with me and uh I'll be here next week. Maybe it'll be that Friday the 13th, part seven, Jason Takes Manhattan episode. Maybe it won't. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Maybe there'll be a guest speaker. Maybe there won't. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. See you all next Sunday. And uh, bye.